Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, February the 16th. We have a lot to discuss this week, so let me get right to introducing you to our panel. Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward. David Kopel, research director at the Independence Institute. As well as Eric Sonderman, columnist for Colorado Politics and the Colorado Springs and Denver Gazettes. And Tyrone Glover, a leading civil rights and criminal defense attorney here in Denver. We are starting with a topic that no one likes to talk about, but we have to, taxes. And it looks like all of us uh, could be voting again about what to do about our property taxes, Patty. Well, voting after we scream, I'm sure other people were in the same situation I was this week when you went, opened your envelope and found it wasn't even the 17% that was predicted or the 30, in my case it's 40, and you know my situation where my roof failed, so I basically have an inhabitable house with high property taxes, with high Xfinity taxes, I mean, Xfinity rates, with high Excel, and you just think this is gonna really affect people at the ballot box. If these proposals, if the proposal coming from Advanced Colorado and Common um, and Colorado Concern, not to be confused with Colorado Commies, I mean, it's not a surprise. These guys would be working together. If that proposal makes it to the ballot in November, I think people will do almost anything for the guarantee that their property taxes will be cut. I mean, I don't know about other municipalities as much as Denver, but you're still looking at costs for trash, new things that were added, costs for residential parking, things that are added and people feel like they're being nickeled and dimed and hundreded to death. Absolutely. A lot of people do. We all do. David. Well, one thing that would mitigate some of that would be for the Colorado state government to stop collecting more income tax than it's entitled to spend. And Governor Polis has spoken many times with, in a very articulate way about how harmful income taxes are uh, to the economy in general, and especially uh, for families who are trying to start a, a small business. So he's, and what he says is, when the state's income tax is bringing in more revenue than the state's allowed to spend by our constitution, you should cut the income tax by that amount. But in, so he says just the right thing, but won't lift a finger to make it happen. And instead, the Democrats in control of the legislature say, no, we want it over collect, and then we will give back, sort of, the money by handouts to special interests through special tax benefits uh, for them. So if instead of it being the income tax surplus being used for special interest benefits, every family in Colorado could have their income taxes cut by hundreds of dollars uh, immediately. There was a proposal to cut income tax and that went nowhere in the legislature this week. That, that's right, and I don't think you saw Governor Polis's team of lobbyists down there trying to twist arms and build supports for it. He, he says the right thing and then does nothing. Eric. Well, I'm a lot to cover here between property taxes and income taxes. I'll start where David left, and David is absolutely right on on this particular issue. Uh, Jared Polis loves on an annual basis to sort of burnish his quote-unquote libertarian credentials or at least to fancy himself the libertarian by talking about ultimately getting income taxes to zero. This was just a, a decrease from 4.4% to 4.0%, hardly zero. But he, he loves to talk about this on an annual basis, and then he exerts no political capital, expends no political capital whatsoever to make it happen. Not a phone call, not a twisted arm, none of it. On property taxes, um, 
I'm with Patty. We received our bills in the past week. Um, yeah, I'm not pleading poverty here. We're fortunate. We do own a second home up in Grand County. Um, I sold a business and we're able to do that these days. But uh, in Denver, the tax bill went up close to 45%. In Grand County, it went up close to 50%. Those are astounding numbers. And for a whole lot of Coloradans who have already been badly damaged by inflation over two to three years, I mean, this is, this is a, a giant step. My prediction is as more and more people get these tax bills, property taxes is going to be, are going to be the hot political issue. There is going to be a lot of focus on the legislature, on polis, on mayors, on local government officials about just the volume of increased money that government is taking out of our pockets. So this will not be the last time we're talking about this issue around this table. In fact, I predict it's going to be a fairly regular subject. Okay, you ready for that? All right. Tyrone. Yeah, we're in an affordability crisis, and uh, the one, I think, encouraging thing is we're seeing folks from opposite ends of political spectrums coming in, trying to strike a balance, trying to figure out how we can make things more affordable while still funding our education and emergency services, teachers and firefighters, really trying to make sure that there's a balance between economy and equity. And so, you know, if there's a silver lining here, unlike a number of issues that I think we're probably going to talk about today, this seems to be one that is uniting folks rather than dividing them. Didn't I see this week, too, that Colorado is one of the worst places for first-time home buyers, or that there aren't a lot of people trying to get their first homes here? Something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing multiple, um, I think, quarters, and I think it just came out, showing that home ownership is on the decline, and we're seeing much more renting and people opting to rent. Um, and so I think that is the going trend until we see something otherwise. Yeah, okay. Uh, this week at the state legislature, a proposal was introduced to ban new oil and gas drilling in Colorado in six years. In 2030, David's sponsors say this is necessary because of climate change and the environmental health impacts on people. Uh, this is a huge industry for our state. It's going to be yeah. interesting to see how this plays out. In every state and every time and place, there have always been doomsday nuts. In the 1960s, you had very prestigious people like Stanford professor... Professor Paul Ehrlich saying that mass global starvation was a certainty within the next few years because of population growth. 100% wrong. And then in the 70s, we got, oh, catastrophic global cooling is just around the corner. And then that didn't happen. So the apocalypse now crowd shifted to global warming in the 1980s. And if they'd been right, this TV show wouldn't be here because public television and all the rest of civilization would have been wiped out long ago. Global, man-made global warming is a real thing, but it's a tiny thing compared to the natural cycles of climate variation. And people who are really concerned about it, the sincere ones, are strong supporters of nuclear power, which is a very clean and very low footprint energy source. You know, abundant energy is the most ma important material input for human health and for human thriving, but there are some people who, for their own crazy pseudo-religious views, think of that as immoral. And this Priola bill will wipe out natural gas, which is one of the cleanest and best sources of abundant energy. Eric. There is no doubt 
that there is man-made climate change happening. There is also no doubt that renewables in various forms are the wave of the future. But that future is not between now and 2030 in all or nothing black or white terms. This is an all or nothing black or white bill. It lacks any subtlety. It lacks any appreciation for the rate of manageable change. It lacks any recognition for the role of oil and gas as an industry, as part of Colorado's economy, the number of households that are dependent on it. And I'm not talking about rich people in Cherry Hills Village who might own an oil and gas company. I'm talking about people in Weld County and a whole lot of other places who are working the front lines of, of, of different oil and gas operations. This is just part and parcel of this tendency of Democrats in this legislature, given their super majorities, to scratch every itch and to scratch it at a very deep and unmanageable level. Um, I assume this will be killed. Governor Polis does not want to see this on his desk. He does not want, you know, he knows better than to sign this bill, but he does not want to be put in a position with Democratic constituency groups uh, who worship at this altar of, ca of casting a veto for it. So I would assume they will see that this never sees the governor's desk. I would hope so. Uh -huh. This bill to me seems more like um, a frustration with the session after session, lack of proactive uh, solutions coming forward uh, to address what is a crisis. This is not something um, that is hypothetical. We're seeing weather events like we've never seen before. We're breaking record after record, year after year. I was just up in Juneau, Alaska and saw the Mindenhall Glacier, which has receded just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds uh, of yards back and is a scintilla of what it used to be. This is real, this is here, and something needs to be done about it. And we're not seeing anything proactively coming in from the critics, right? And so now we have this very ambitious bill. To me, this is sort of a, a shot fired over the, the bow. Uh, eventually, one of these things is gonna get through unless we all come together, unlike the last topic, and actually come up with something that's common sense and makes sense for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, to play off another thing Tyrone said, affordability is such an issue now. So that's one thing that is going to help this bill go down, which is people cannot afford all renewable energy yet. We're not there with the industry, as Eric said. That's more in the future. We can push to that goal, but we're not there by 2030. And if energy is more expensive, we're not willing to give up our, the things we plug in. We're not get ready to give up our cars yet. And that's gonna be one of the big issues is what, how much can we afford to pay for? But the other thing is there is a will. The, the, this week, Colorado College released its annual Conservation in the West poll. And for the first time in 14 years for, since the poll began, residents of the Rocky Mountains and especially Coloradans are concerned about water shortages. The majority are concerned, more than have ever been concerned before definitely climate change. So the question is, how much of that is just lip service and how much are people willing to pay in order to protect the climate? Okay. <coughs> All right, let's discuss again the migrant situation. It is an issue that keeps evolving every week, every day. We're seeing informational meetings in local communities about migrants. We are also seeing misinformation about migrants. And then let's also discuss what is already, what is actually happening. I'll start with you, Eric. 
Well, there's a lot here. We Speaking of those meetings, Kyle, we saw meetings in Lakewood and in Colorado Springs where people were addressing sanctuary city status. I'm not a fan of sanctuary cities. I think it's a form of nullification. And, uh, you know, we know what nullification has meant in the South in terms of civil rights laws and whatever. I'm not a, for, a fan of nullification as a concept. But there was an ugliness to some of, of these meetings. We're dealing with real people, real lives. They need to be dealt with with compassion. They've gone through hell to get out of where they were living. They've gone through hell to get here. That does not mean our country has an unlimited carrying capacity. I've written about this many times. We have to get control of our borders. A sovereign nation has to determine who comes in to that country. Republican Party obviously has chosen, led by Donald Trump, that they would rather have this as a campaign issue than to do anything about it. So their solution is, let's cast an impeachment vote of the Homeland Services Director uh, as if that is somehow a solution to the problem. Both parties are complicit in this thing. Uh, this thing demands a solution. When one looked like it was possible, Donald Trump and, and his ilk decided they would much rather have a political issue. And then you get the whole thing of how Mike Johnston has announced, whether it's you know DMV offices closing one week a month, no flowers in city parks and recs, rec center hours uh, being cut back, all as part of budget cuts. And I think what you're seeing going on in the Lakewoods and Colorado Springs of the world is going to start bleeding into Denver. Yes, Denver has a more quote-unquote progressive or liberal-minded electorate, but just as Denver now has a new director of newcomer services, uh, there are a whole lot of old-timers in Denver who think maybe there should be a director of old-timer <laughs> services and uh, those being preserved and safeguarded and restored. Mm -hmm. And all those meetings made national news as exactly. well. Tyrone. We need sustainable solutions, not scapegoating. It was so beautiful, the initial reaction uh, to, to the newcomers when our um, communities really rallied around and however they could support, they did. It was a time of unity. It was a time of folks coming together. And it's just such a shame, and I'm so disheartened to see politicians trying to use this issue now as a way to divide us in a time when we need to be coming together around our values. Um, I agree there are systematic issues which are now really, I think, coming to bear uh, because of the pressure on the systems like uh, the border, like our health care system. But now is not the time um, to, to, to divide. Now is the time to come together and come up with solutions that work for everybody, old timers and newcomers. Mm -hmm. Well, the, you have a lot of misinformation out there, which is one of the issues, say the Lakewood meeting where there was the whole rumor that an empty school was going to house migrants and Lakewood was in cahoots with Denver. So we have a tough enough situation without misinformation. And there's certainly plenty of that going along. And you talk about scapegoating. It's true that in the beginning it was really interesting how people who maybe weren't interested in helping those experiencing homelessness definitely stepped up for the migrants, recognizing the sacrifices they'd gone through to get here, the families that had come, the lives they'd left behind. But now as you begin, as the cuts come and are affecting the residents of Denver, you begin to see that there is a schism in people who want theirs and the people who want to help. We did a story about one woman who brought her 
two kids and her dog, eight countries, walked through, and someone had sheltered her dog while the woman was in shelter, and now she can't get her dog back. And I can tell you, we haven't had, haven't had as much response to a story in years as to this migrant dog. I would like to see as much attention paid to the migrants themselves, but it's an issue that is really dividing the city. It is. David. So sanctuary was an old-time European legal concept where if you were, the, the sheriff was trying to arrest you for some violent crime like a murder, if you could hot-foot it and get into a church before the sheriff or his deputies grabbed you, then you could claim sanctuary in the church. And what that usually meant is you'd probably, you'd have to go into exile but you'd presumably be thinking that was a better deal uh, than getting hanged or going to prison. Now we've got sanctuary coming back in a new kind of way. The idea of sanctuary cities and sanctuary states started with unlawful immigrants, but it's been copied and applied to lots of other issues like uh, drug laws or gun laws and all, all kinds of topics. But whatever the topic is, if some local government de declares that it is a sanctuary for X, then there's going to be more X in that jurisdiction. And so what the people of, of every municipality in Colorado are thinking about right now is looking at the practical experience of Denver as a sanctuary city. And the people are deciding, should the city cut its services for citizens and for lawful immigrants in order to provide services to unlawful immigrants? And that is happening. And, and, and people can decide either way, and that, that's what local governments are for. Wow. This, is, this will be another topic we'll yeah. be talking about every week or so. Um, let's talk about what a lot of people are speaking about these days, and that's our safety in our communities. This week brought the one-year mark of when Luis Garcia was shot and killed leaving East High School. The case remains unsolved. There was a shooting inside a mega church in Texas, a mass shooting at the Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade, and a drive-by outside the downtown aquarium in the middle of the day here in Denver on Wednesday. Tyrone, I know there are more bills going through the legislature, but there's another sense of frustration among a lot of people. There is, and my heart goes out to Luis's family. Um, you know, I think the saying, justice delayed is justice denied. Um, definitely uh, applies here, but hopefully there is uh, some light and some hope. My understanding is that they're presenting a case which normally means there's, you know, at least a, a suspect, um, but whether there's probable cause to charge will be determined. Um, I think dealing with all of this in light of the Bruin decision has just been especially difficult. Um, but I think we have to continue to push forward. We have to continue to do what's right. We need to continue to try to make our communities safer, um, despite what are perceived as some of the judicial hurdles we're going to now need to clear. But this is absolutely something uh, that needs addressing. I feel like Columbine, um, you know, I wasn't in Colorado, but I remember hearing about it, and that was sort of the, the penultimate um, incident that got all of this rolling. Um, and it's only gotten worse. There's common sense solutions. We need to come together and we, we need to advance those. Um, and the folks that are pushing back and are trying to kill a number of the bills that are working their way through the session, maybe they need to put something forward and maybe they need to come up with some of these solutions instead of just trying to kill uh, everything that the, uh, other sides are trying to advance. 
Well, the good news is that actually violent crime is down in downtown Denver and in Denver in general, but down still isn't down enough. So we want people to feel safer. We want people to realize they can go out. Um, we're going to see an explosion around the country now after the Super Bowl shootings, just as we did after the Nuggets championship. This is the kind of thing that gets more attention than the student shot outside East High School or maybe the downtown aquarium, whatever that was, and supposedly he was targeted. It wasn't something random. But we're seeing the legislature go considering guns, gun packages again, the size they haven't done since back in 2013, 10 years ago. Will they make it through one or two might? I'm guessing David will be shooting down some of the logic on those bills. But people need to know Denver is safer than it was, but it's still not safe enough. And it's not just Denver, right? It's everywhere. It's I mean, everywhere. if you look at Aurora, Aurora, if you look at their crimes in the hinterlands of Colorado that are really appalling. Mm -hmm. Well, right, crime goes up and down for lots of causes. And, but historically, Colorado has always had uh, a lower overall violent crime rate than the United States until the past few years. And now Colorado has a violent crime rate that is much higher than the United States overall. And that is, has many causes. One of them is that in Colorado, a convicted violent criminal typically only serves 43% of his sentence. There was a bill in the legislature to change that. That got killed. The two perpetrators, suspects, of the shootings at the Kansas City Chiefs celebration are both repeat criminals who didn't like each other and saw each other at the event and then they started shooting at each other and a lot of people got in the crossfire. It'll be interesting to, as we find out more, <clears throat> to know why those, those, both of those perpetrators uh, were not in prison in, in the first place given their existing records. The anti-gun jihad at the legislature comes from folks like the Giffords organization. And Ms. Giffords has very forthrightly said what her objective is, no more guns, gone. And so the legislature, compliant with that vision, has been enacting laws to crack down on peaceable citizens rather than on violent, dangerous people. And one, an example of that was just this week where <clears throat> if you steal a gun right now in Colorado, that's just a petty offense. And there was a bill, and yet stolen guns are the number one source of guns for violent criminals. So there was a bill to increase that penalty. The governor supported it, and the majority in the committee killed it. So they're, <clears throat> they're very tender uh, in protecting violent gun criminals, uh, but very aggressive in cracking down on the peaceable people. Violent gun criminals in Colorado serve nearly double the sentence in the Department of Corrections. So there is an enhancement for um, you know, a crime of violence. And so unlike, uh, and I don't think there's any data or evidence that necessarily says that because of that, they are committing more gun crimes. So there's not, in my view, really a nexus between the two. Where there is a nexus is that with assault weapons, we know what is being used in the King Super shootings. We know what's being used in Club Q. We know what was used in Columbine. We know what was used in the Aurora Theater shooting. Okay, there's an actual nexus those, there. And you think you ban those guns, then there's not going to be any more mass shootings. And then people will just bring two handguns to it. This whole assault weapon thing is an example 
of something where people who don't understand guns are easily distracted. A so-called assault weapon fires at exactly the same rate as any common handgun. It's not more, and if you look at the power of the bullets, it's on the lower side compared to other rifles. So again, this is a distraction. And then the people who are in favor of this, like Giffords, they understand that assault weapons are just the opening point in banning all guns, because this is what they can get away with in particular. We'd be better off focusing on keeping, not only giving violent gun criminals long sentences in the court, but then making sure they actually serve those sentences, because while they're doing that, they can't be committing crimes against other people. And David, you know there's a difference between a handgun and an AR-15. Anyone who's been to a gun range and someone pulls out an AK-47 or an AR-15 and starts firing it down the line can just even sense and feel the power, those rounds and what they do to a human body and the efficiency with which they're able to do that um, and the accuracy with which they're able to do that with a long-range weapon. Um, is, it's, it's a much more devastating military-grade um, firearm than every, a handgun. Every rifle is more powerful in general than every handgun because they have a longer barrel so the bullet gets more uh, velocity behind it and has more power. This notion that the AR, the most popular rifle in American history, 20% of current gun sales, is some super powerful weapon is a flat-out lie. The 223 or 556 caliber, if you look at their kinetic energy, which is the power with which they hit a target, it is lower than for other rifles. And if you're shooting that out of a hunting rifle, that's one thing, but if you're shooting that out of a 30 round extended clip or 100 round barrel out of an AR 15, it's not only the power, it's the efficiency and the accuracy. People who couldn't hit the side the broadside of a barn with a handgun can be deadly accurate with an AR-15 or similar weapon. Right, so you don't think that law-abiding citizens should be able to have an accurate gun that they can use. I, I agree that an AR can be easier, because it's lower powered, it's easier for people you know, who aren't real big and tough uh, to use defensively. And you're saying you don't like that. You, th you think that a, a, a gun being accurate makes it something that should be higher on the, the list of what to ban. I think that those guns that are that powerful need to be kept out of the hands of people who want to go out and do harm to children, who want to commit mass shootings. And yes, you have like the, the mother uh, who was recently convicted, um, who was lawfully owning um, an assault rifle, but it fell into the hands uh, of uh, her child. We've seen that time and time again. If we can figure out how to keep lawful guns out of the hands of people with unlawful intentions, then I think that's a step forward. And we this, agree on that one. And this is being brought up again in the legislature, so there'll be more discussion. Eric, your thoughts? Uh, my column runs under the heading of down the middle, and that's how I feel uh, somewhat <laughs> in this exchange, sitting here between uh, my friends David and uh, Tyrone. I think too often in this debate, we get caught up into an either-or dichotomy. Either it's guns or it's punishment. Either it's gun control or it's mental health. Why can't it be all of the above? Yes, I think, to David's point, there has been a mood in Colorado policy over a few years of leaning towards lightening sentences, decriminalizing some crimes, et cetera. I think people who commit violent crimes should do their time, and that time should be extended. But I also believe that any 
reasonable gun control legislation that will pass legal muster. And given our courts these days, that's a heck of an asterisk about the legal muster. But anything that will pass legal muster is good by me. We need to get these weapons off the street. They're too often used, whether it's at the Nuggets Parade or at the Chiefs Celebration or whatever. They are too often used just because the opportunity presents itself or some minor dispute turns into a major dispute. Guns are a part of the problem, but I also think we delude ourselves if we think they are the entire problem. What is going on in this country also indicates a degree of cultural rot, and if we don't address and somehow rectify that cultural rot, no amount of weapon control will, will ultimately do the trick. And to add just one thing, when you have a 13-year-old who shoots and kills a 60-year-old on an RTD bus just because his leg is in the way, you have so many different problems exactly. you have to address. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. After that, it is time now for us to go around the table and talk about some highs and lows of the week. We've talked about some of the lows, but Patty, I'll start with you. That something disappointed you so that by the time we get to the end, we're ending on a positive note. Well, I'll say it's disappointing, but it's also good. So on Sunday, we will mark the anniversary of when FDR sent Japanese Americans, basically, to concentration camps. But just yesterday, the Department of the Interior announced that Camp Amachi, which was the concentration camp for Japanese Americans here in southeastern Colorado, will become a National Historic Landmark. Okay. The University of Colorado Law School, which made in enormous legal settlement with law professor Paul Campos because he complained that they were discriminating against him and then the dean wrote in writing that she was retaliating against Campos for having complained about discriminating. Now if you were not the dean of the University of Colorado Law School but just an average person lawyer passed the bar exam you'd know that that's flagrantly illegal. Well, I'm also going to the University of Colorado, but a different department up there, uh, the Ethnic Studies Department. This is a couple weeks old, but it deserves some commentary. I'm no fan of that Ethnic Studies Department, and particularly the silly statement they put out uh, in the aftermath of October 7th, which was an endorsement, basically, of Hamas and uh, a completely one-sided statement. But as much as I despise that statement, I'm not a fan of doxing, and there's some liberal progressive group that's been going around Boulder with billboards on the side of a car or a, a truck uh, with the home addresses, et cetera, of the Ethnic Studies Department members. That is an unnecessary escalation. These people are entitled to their free speech rights. They're entitled to their right to be wrong. And my low is, a, I think, still a bit of a high because it is in recognition of a, of a life well lived. Uh, Kevin Williams, who was a titan in disability rights law, passed this week. Um, you know, his relentless pursuit of justice and equality. I mean, he not only broke, you know, legal but physical barriers. And I think that his work will continue, continue to live on and be really a, a testament to his legacy and power of advocacy. Okay. All right. Patty, something positive. Well, Aurora has been dealing with a lot of growing pains, and they just hired Ginger White, who had been head of theaters and arenas in Denver, or I should say arts and venues. They've hired her to do cultural supervision. It'll be a really a good, great addition in that town. Okay. Well, the, the pro-Hamas mobs across the country have been engaged in these many insurrections of preventing lawful legislative bodies from functioning. And 
so this week we had for the third time the pro-Hamas mob shutting down the Denver City Council. And happily, the Denver City Council stood up to this attack on democracy and rejected a pro-Hamas resolution. Right on to both Patty and uh, to David. I'm going to real quickly mention three Republicans. Norma Anderson, a woman of incredible courage, whatever becomes of that lawsuit, putting her name to it. Keith King, a legislator who passed away in the past couple of weeks, a true champion of school choice in this state. And lastly, Ken Buck for being that rare vote against the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. Basically, Ken is a conservative Republican, but he says, show me the evidence, and the evidence wasn't there. And a shout out to all of the uh, Black History Month programming that's going on. I want to specifically shout out to right down the street, the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library, um, a, a very unique one to our you know, city and county of Denver. Uh, they've got a lot of great programming. Go to their website and um, make sure you check it out before the oh. end of the month. Okay. Uh, my positives, I say positives too, because I have two colleagues in the broadcast uh, industry that I want to give a shout out to. Channel 7 meteorologist Mike Nelson announced that he is retiring after more than four decades of forecasting and in recent years educating all of us on climate change and the effects to our Colorado weather. And how can we forget his fabulous tornado dance that he has brought to Colorado schools over the decades? Mike will be retiring in December. Now, leaving a little bit sooner from the local TV scene is Jenny Kavnar, who for the last 12 years covered the Rockies and was a TV host during games. Jenny is now headed to the Oakland A's to become the first woman to be a play-by-play -play announcer in Major League history. So congrats to her, both Jenny and Mike's show. When you love what you do and you give it your all, good things happen and those all around benefit from it. Thank you, panel, for joining us this week. Thank you for watching or listening on our podcast. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.